Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so glad to introduce my guest, Broadway actress DJ Man Bartlett. DJ Man starred as Petra in the original production of A Little Night Music, and her other credits on Broadway and around the country include Boccaccio, The Guys in the Truck, Spotlight, Ankles Away, Godspell, and My Fair Lady. In addition, she is the author of the book to the new musical Confessions of a Retired Witch. This Monday, July 17th at 7 p.m., you can come in person to or stream Backstage Babble Live at 54 Below, where DJ Man will be recreating her performance of The Miller's Son. You won't want to miss that show. And now, here without further ado, is DJ Man Bartlett. I would love to start by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? Oh, gosh. I must have been about seven years old. And uh, I just, you know, started watching uh, movies on TV, the song and dance movies. And I was hooked. I was hooked. I started music lessons at um, 11 and, and studied for over 11 years. So you get hooked. What yeah. can I tell you? <laughs> and did you always know that Broadway was where you wanted to end up? Or? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yep. I I, uh, I started in musicals. You know, you do high school musicals. You do school musicals um, from the time you're a baby, practically. You know, fourth grade, fifth grade. And um, they had beautiful assemblies in those days and shows and stuff. So I did that. And then I went to church uh, shows. I did all of those for free. And as I said, all through it, I was ha- I had singing lessons all the way through it. So I got the jobs, <laughs> you know, simple. Right. I was trained at a very, very young age. And, um, and then I just went to summer stock for one season and then uh, made the rounds in New York on hot summer days like these. Oh, gosh. And then... Uh, auditioned, you know, got an agent and auditioned and was very lucky. I was able to get shows. And were your parents supportive of your sort of career path or decision? My mother was. My father wanted no part of it. You know, he thought it was for, um, I don't know, he, you know, people not, um, hmm not educated and not this and that. So he wasn't, but she was all for it. Yes, she was. And so what were some of the roles that you did early on in high school and and all of that? Oh, okay. In high school, I played Eliza Doolittle um, in My Fair Lady. I played Nettie Fowler 
in carousel. That's in actually middle school. In high school, I did a lot of plays. I did uh, Harvey. I played Myrtle May, the man who came to dinner. I played Lorraine Sheldon. Uh, in t- really little grammar school, I played the Thumbelina, Snow White. <laughs> you know, all those sweet, sweet musicals. I mean, how could you not want to do this for the rest of your life? I mean, you know, you'd have to be crazy not want to do to not want to do it. It's just such a magical place to be. And uh, that's it. You know, growing up in the Bronx, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And how did you choose where to go to college and what was college like for you? It was wonderful because I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City for the two-year course. And I graduated with an associate's degree. And what you learn there is amazing. Uh, I, I was taught fencing. I was taught uh, more singing, but I, I was still studying <laughs> uh, dancing, uh, acting. Of course, some of the finest acting teachers were at the academy. Uh, the uh, the actor studio has always kind of, they didn't really bash it, but you know, you were not really studying unless you were in the actor's studio. The Academy's approach to acting was more of a commercial venue, if that makes any sense. Actors didn't have time to um, uh, contemplate their navels, <laughs> as I know, as uh, was the favorite expression of those days. You learned to work the play for not only the playwright, but for the audience. So if it was a comedy, yes, you had to feel strongly about the character, but you also sometimes played it a little bit for laughs too, you know, to please your audience. And I found that so helpful, so tremendously helpful, uh, you know, going into professional theater then after that. And growing up in the Bronx, did you see a lot of Broadway shows or any? Or No, I didn't see a lot of Broadway shows because uh, we were way at the way far end of the Bronx, uh, between two bridges, the Whitestone Bridge and the Throg's Neck Bridge. And so uh, that's the real end. The next thing is the East River. So we were really far out. And it would have taken almost two hours to get into New York. But... You know, as I said, I watched a lot of movie musicals, heard a lot of music, had music on all the time. Uh, and I think eventually my mother took me to Broadway and I saw um, My Fair Lady and Sound of Music. Oh. And uh, then I, I married very young and we still stayed in the Bronx because the, the apartments were cheap. And we saw a lot of music, uh, musicals. We saw 1776, we saw Men of La Mancha, uh, Company, uh, Follies. We saw almost everything that we could see, both my um, ex-husband and I. He was interested in theater too. So that worked out, you know, yeah. that part of it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> What was it like to balance sort of being married with being an actress and all of that? Yeah, it was hard. 
I won't lie to you. It was actually um, almost murder because um, I had two little babies right away. And so there you are, married, two babies, and trying to break into theater. So it was, it was rough, you know. But um, I had tremendous luck in meeting Harold Prince. And that was it. I mean, he started, he started my whole real professional. Well, he actually didn't. I did do, uh, as I said, a season of summer stock before I was married. And then an off-Broadway show shortly after I was married. And then I went into Godspell in Washington, D.C. And then met Harold Prince at the last minute audition for A Little Night Music. I met him at the original auditions and didn't get the role. Oh. But he walked down the aisle and he said to me, um, you're very, very talented. He said, but you really have no credits, so, which I didn't, um, other than you know amateur credits or a summer stock. And he said, and this is really a big Broadway show. I won't forget you. I will remember you. And then I guess shortly before they were about to open, in fact, very shortly before they were about to open, they replaced a young lady who was having trouble singing the Miller Son. It's not her fault. The original song written was Silly People for George Lee Andrews, but it was a real dirge. And I mean, beautiful, but really slow. And after sending the clowns, it would have just brought the show down. Prince said, can't have this. So he commissioned Sondheim to write a song for the maid this time. And he said, and make it up and make it fun and leave the audience smiling and laughing and clapping. Well, this poor young lady who was hired as an actress, not a singer, had to try to sing this song, which is hard even for a singer. Yeah. And you know, it's difficult. Even today, I still sing it in concert and it's still hard. And um, that's when they had to replace her. And I went into the show in four days. Wow. Yeah. And, and what was your relationship like with the other cast coming in at such short notice? And yeah, it's going to be testy. There's no way around it. You know, uh, I mean, as Harold Prince once said to me, I'm sorry if you had any problems. This is years later when we reconnected. We had lost touch and then we reconnected. And um, he said, I'm so sorry that someone like you should have trouble, you know, in the cast or they kind of snubbed you or whatever. He said, but let me tell you this. They would have crawled over the poor girl's corpse to play Petra and sing the Miller's son. <laughs> so, you know, just understand that it's not you. It actually was them, you know, so I took that. And so because that is not just a show that gets done a lot, but a song that specifically gets done a lot, what sort of advice would you give to people trying to interpret that song? And I'm going to say, I just was asked this question by uh, a young director who is directing night music somewhere. And he contacted me on Facebook 
by the way, which I'm having a lot of fun. I'm very new to social media and I'm just having a lot of fun with it. Anyways, and we met. So there we go. That's fun. Um, What I would say is what Prince told me. Petra is young. She's very young and she's exuberant. It's not so much the sexuality of the song, though it's there, but it's in the background as it actually is at times with very young people. You know, they, they, they're not thinking, uh, how can I manipulate? How can I do this? How? No, and she wasn't either. So it was the exuberance of the moment. And that's what he told me. And it was wonderful. I mean, when, when you think of it, if you see pictures of me in night music, my blouse is all the way buttoned up <laughs> almost to my neck. There might be one little flap open. Other girls I've seen do it on a YouTube or wherever, you know, their, their clothes are half hanging off them. That's not what the show, that's not what the song is about. It's just about young, exuberant people enjoying the moment of being with someone. Simple as that, you know. I, with some people, so I, I've seen it so many times, some people have, uh, put dark meanings on it and what <laughs> what are you talking about you know but that's that's what it is that's what Harold Prince told me how to how to sing the song yeah and what was your relationship like with the great Stephen Sondheim who well Stephen and I came from two totally different worlds so I'm a mother with two kids it's kind of foreign to him completely. Um, new animal in town, you know. Though he uh, loved the way I did the song and people said he would come in for the second act, stay for the Miller's son and leave. That's what I was told by many people. Um, it, it was a quiet one is the word I'm going to use. We didn't exchange too many um, words between us though he was always polite as as he did with the other cast members but they had been there for weeks already and he felt more comfortable with them and so that's kind of where it's at um years later again at a uh, function to honor harold prince for the eugene o'neill theater it was directed by mark bruni I was asked to do The Miller's Son again. It was a whole retrospect of Hal's music and of his shows, rather. And so I had to sit through, again, I'm the 11 o'clock number. I had to sit through all these gorgeous young people singing from Phantom, singing from Gabaret, singing from, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to die here. Because <laughs> the dinner was before and uh, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink anything, you know, nervous as hell. So my time comes, I go out on stage and Stephen didn't know I was going to do this. Hal did. I had seen Hal before I had to sing, but not Stephen. And the front table, because there were tables set up for dinners, front table was Angela Lansbury, um, uh, Harold Prince, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, who was doing night music at the time, Michael Douglas, Stephen Sondheim, and I believe Lauren Bacall. Oh, wow. 
And that's the first table as you come out onto the stage. So 11 o'clock comes or close to it, whatever it was. And I'm announced and I come out on the stage and I thought I would die. I really truly did. I'm not making this up. I had written the catchphrases on my hand, wink, wiggle, giggle, thing, just in case I went totally blank. Thank God there was a spotlight shown very strong into my eyes. Stevens, well, Hal tells me this afterwards. Um, and I start the song. And I remembered what Harold told me. And I looked up into the spotlight and sang it like a young girl, even though I was no longer a young girl. And afterward, and Harold Prince led an ovation. I mean, you know, that's, well, that's who he is. He's amazing. Afterwards, he wrote me a magnificent thank you note, which I'll try to share on, uh, on Facebook if I can figure out how to pop things over, okay? It's still hard for me to do that. Um, and he said, Steve's mouth flew wide open. He had no idea I was going to do this. And um, when he came up on stage to present Hal the award, which was right after I sang, so I'm going downstage, Steve is coming up, he gave me a nice big hug. Oh. And afterwards came up to me and said, thank you for singing my song so beautifully again. And that's a lovely thing to say. And uh, Hal Prince and I resumed um, a friendship, which we should have had years and years and years ago, which he actually chastised me for and said, <laughs> why the hell didn't you contact me 30 years ago? You know, I don't know. Shy, backward, awkward, even, even after you do great things, you can still have those feelings, you know? So that was me. But I was with him up until uh, he passed. This is the uh, July 31 is the anniversary of his death. July, oh. yeah, 31, uh, 2019. And I would love to, um, to ask you as well about Hermione Gingold, who not only was in the original, but also the uh, tour that you did afterwards. Okay, I have since then learned through Facebook, thank goodness, that she doesn't like any women. I didn't know that. How the heck am I, you know, I had no idea. So her dressing room was the first in, in the Broadway show. Her dressing room was the first dressing room as you see, as you come through your stage door. And she would greet everyone every night in a robe on top, like a little blouse on top and her pantyhose. That's it. <laughs> and her dog. And so some people, she would go, oh, hello, how are you? You know, but not to me. And she would just give glare at me. And one day I swore the dog stuck his tongue out at me. I mean, maybe he was panting or doing whatever he was doing. But I swore it. I told the dressers that and they, they couldn't stop laughing for the rest of the night. Okay. So she was, she was Hermione Gingold. Anything that you could imagine is who she is. And there's, I don't know, there's no need for that. You know, I wrote a post about the uh, beanie bashing for the funny girl thing. I, I was really upset with a lot of critics, a lot of people, leave her alone, 28 years old, leave her alone, you know? And I think older actresses have to stop 
you know, you're not going to be 30. You're not going to be 20. You are who you are. You are at the age you are. Give room to young actresses and be kind and be nice to them. You know, they're just, they're just trying to wet their feet and come up the boards. And thank goodness for that. We, you know, we need the young people in our business. So I hope that answered your question. That's all I can really tell you is that for the entire run and even, even the tour, uh, she just kept that stoic kind of, I don't know, um, <laughs> I want to say so many words are coming to mind. <laughs> gruesome, <laughs> nasty, whatever. But I'm trying myself to be a little kind. It's hard. It's hard when somebody has not been, you know, nice to you. It's difficult. But you, you manage, you know. <laughs> and when you were uh, sort of making the rounds around this time and after college and all that, was there an audition song that you would use a lot? Or? Yes, there were two. One was from Jesus Christ Superstar, I Don't Know How to Love Him. Oh. And the other one was Maybe This Time, both of which I used to re-audition up in Boston before going into the show uh, for both Stephen and Hal. So here I am, I'm on a stage, the Colonial Theater in Boston, and Hal Prince comes down the aisle again and he goes hello remember me and I said yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um he said thank you for flying up because I was in Washington doing Godspell and he said what are you going to sing for us dear and I said um I don't know how to love him from Jesus Christ Superstar in the back of the theater I hear I hate that song <laughs> okay I guess you can figure out who said that right <laughs> yeah all right so Hal turns around and he said uh and gives him a glare, I guess. I didn't see on Hal's face. I'm sure it wasn't a pleasant one. And he said to me, all right, do you have another song? And I said, yes, I have Maybe This Time from Cabaret. He said, all right, let's hear Maybe This Time. We just want to hear, you know, just a, one more reminder of the quality of your voice. That's all. I said, okay. So I sang Maybe This Time. And there's silence, of course, in the theater. It's only the two of them. And Hal walks down the aisle again, and he says, I always hated that song. <laughs> he said, but now I have goosebumps. Oh. Please learn Stephen's song. And so that was it. So I had to learn as much, I mean, reading it, of course, reading the music, learn the Miller's son, and then sing it for Sondheim. <laughs> And so I would love to ask about a show you did um, right after that, I believe, or maybe a little bit more after that, which was Two by Five. Oh, that was a joy. That was such a joy. That was at the Village Gate, and it's a retrospect of Candor and Ebb. And how could you not love Candor and Ebb? You know, I mean, really, I, I, there has to be something wrong with you, uh, <laughs> in my, my estimation. Um, Yes, there's a story with that, too, because about halfway through rehearsals, Fred Ebb calls me over and says, I want you to hear a new song. I'm going to pull you out of rehearsal for uh, a few minutes, maybe a little longer. I want you to hear a new song that we wrote for a movie called New York, New York. I said, OK. So they did. They called me out of rehearsal 
and the stage manager took over a little bit. And we're, I, we go to another room and uh, Fred and, and uh, John start arguing a little bit. John says, we can't put it in the show. Liza will kill us. And Fred said, said, I wrote half of it. I want it in the show. So there they are. They're bantering back and forth. And meanwhile, John says, well, all right, let, let's at least let Dee hear it. So he starts that famous bum, bum, bada, bum, 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 bada. I knew. I said, this is such a hit. I just, it was just so catchy, immediately so accessible. And Fred sang the song for me. I don't know if you've ever seen Fred Ebb sing it, but, but it's quite amazing to watch Fred Ebb do his own song. I was hooked. I said, if you want me to sing it, I'll sing it. So it was in the show. It was one of the last numbers in the show. Opening night, who's in the audience? Liza Minnelli. Now this song had never been sung. The, the movie wasn't out. So New Yorkers had never heard it. So at the end of New York, New York, the whole place stands up and goes crazy as they would. They loved it. They were nuts. And um, so, but Liza's in the audience. And then after I sang that, then Fred comes up on stage and he says, we have a young lady in the audience that you all know will all recognize Ms. Liza Minnelli. Well, the place goes crazy again. Liza comes up on stage and we had to sit on stage. You know, those musicals where you have to sit on stage in chairs and watch the other actor perform. I find them kind of, I don't like them too much. But anyway, so we're sitting on stage. Liza turns to me and she says, would you mind if I did my song? And I'm assuming it's New York, New York or any one of the ones that they wrote. So what am I gonna say? I go, of course, you know, she sings New York, New York again, right after I just sung it. The response was tepid. Oh. And here's why. You can't fool New Yorkers. They kind of knew what she was doing subconsciously, even putting a young performer down. This is, you know, this is what I'm saying. It, it just doesn't go over, you know, it doesn't. So anyway, the show went on. We had fantastic performers. Uh, we had uh, Danny Fortis, who had been in Minnie's Boys, sang an ode to Sarah Lee. It was a great show, great show, it got great reviews. And I think it made John and Fred very happy to see their music. And was there ever a show around this time or later on that you turned down? Oh, please don't even talk about that to me. Oh my God, what a moron, okay? <laughs> You can't see me, but you're looking at a moron. All right. Anyway, um, and I got to tell this story to the composer. We were, Mark and I, Mark Bornfield is my incredibly talented partner in madness and writing and performing. Um, and we were invited because we wrote a show called Confessions of a Retired Witch. We were invited to the Variety Convention for Writers and Producers last November. Uh, we met so many incredible people, Charles Bush, Beanie, Feldstein. We, we met a whole bunch of wonderful people there and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Wow. Okay. So here we are and Andrew Lloyd Webber and I are talking and about our uh, wonderful feelings about Harold Prince 
and how amazing he was and kind and good and, and an incredible director. And I said, I have a secret to uh, share with you, Sir Andrew. He said, and what is that, please? <laughs> I said, you're looking at the idiot that turned down the understudy to Cats for Betty Buckley. He let out an audible, no, <laughs> that heads were turning and everything because um, they needed an understudy for Cats because it was a difficult show and, and it was, and you know, it was wearing on Betty Buckley who, but I did. I can't tell you why. I, I, it's like when your agent calls you and you don't give it time to think. And I love cats, the pussy cats so much. And I'd studied the song and I knew the song was in my voice and I knew it was perfect. And, but Betty got the role. And something in my ridiculous brain turned down the understudy. And uh, I have regretted it to this day. So that's, that's the show I regret. Yes, incredibly. Some of the others that I did turn down, you know, and then some bombs that I did, <laughs> I didn't turn down. <laughs> so, you don't know, it's a tossed up. You know, actors want to work and... Uh, it kind of depends on where your head is at that time. If you can do things, workshops and stuff like that, you know, how much time you can give. So yes, I turned down cats. Idiot. <laughs> You're giggling, but I'm telling you. <laughs> and so there was one uh, short running show that you did on Broadway only during some of the previews, which was um, The Guys in the Truck. And yes. How did that first happen then? Well, that happened uh, because I had uh, known David Black, who was the director. Uh, we had done Spotlight together, which was on, with Gene Barry, who's a wonderful, wonderful person to work with. Um, not so much uh, Elliot Gould. You know, it becomes difficult after a while uh, with Elliot. And um, I got kicked off the truck. <laughs> I got fired. Um, actually, then along with Elliot Gould, right after I got fired, he got fired. And the show fell on its face. Uh, I don't even think it opened. I don't think it lasted through the previews. You know, it was problematic, the whole show. Uh, there were all kinds of artistic differences. They refused to mic the stage. And you, you had, yeah, it wasn't a musical. There was a, their, their, their saying was, it's not a musical, it doesn't have to be mic'd. Yes, it does. Um, unless you want everybody screaming their lines, which is what happened because, uh, you know, people, people couldn't hear after the fourth row, fifth row. So it, it was a problem. The music, the, the show was a, a tremendous problem. So I was actually very happy to be out of it, you know. And so as an actor, if you see that a show is sort of going downhill in rehearsals, will you ever suggest changes or anything like that? Or No, I've, I've actually learned, uh, I learned at an early age to be quiet, <laughs> leave it alone. There was another show I did with John Michael Tebelek, who created Godspell along with Stephen Schwartz, called The Glorious Age, and that I worked with Don Scardino. And that show 
had tremendous problems. Great cast, uh, wonderful cast. Laurie Fosso was in it. Um, I think Barry Pearl was in it. Uh, wonderful, wonderful cast. But the show had problems. And John Michael was not um, equipped at that time to fix them. Yeah. Even though he's very creative, obviously, Godspell and all that. But it, it still ha it had more of a book than Godspell. And perhaps he was not a book uh, director, you know, like Hal is. Hal Prince would direct the entire book, like Jerry Zachs. You know, these are people that give the book as much credence as the music. And that's very important. So that died too. But, you know, good show. Didn't go anywhere. <laughs> And so for the glorious AJ and for the guys in the truck, for those who don't know, could you tell us a little bit about what those shows were about? Or, Yes, Guys in the Truck was about um, uh, football. And Elliot Gould played um, uh, uh, a newscaster, you know, one of those guys that give you the blow-by-blow -blow description of the game. And I was his girlfriend that would always sit in the truck with him because he said he, I gave him good vibes and stuff like that. I don't know. I mean, without a football game going on and just two people describing what's going on, eh. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't terribly interesting. So that was that one went. And Glorious Age was fun. Glorious Age was about, um, the times when witches were uh, being persecuted in Salem, Massachusetts. And I have a long history of playing witches. I even played the Cabbage Patch Witch on the records and tapes. And um, so Dan Don Scardino, what they used to do is to see if you were a real witch, stick a pin in you. And so it was kind of a one joke uh, show. Donnie Scardino had to run around trying to stick a pin in me. And that's kind of where we were at. There were some kind of lame songs, nothing that would grab an audience. And so that went down, you know, but um, that, that's what happens. I, you look at shows, you look at the books of shows, you look at the scores and you try to see, I, I'm the kind of audience that I really try to find the goodness in a show. I want the shows to succeed. And sometimes I can, and then sometimes I can't, you know? So all I can tell you is that uh, a writer's job, because I wrote the book for our musical, a writer's job is just rewriting. <laughs> That's all you do. You just rewrite. I'm in rewrites now. I've been in rewrites for a couple of years. Uh, and that's what you do. And you pass it off to very talented people to read it and give you their opinions. What, if, what they don't understand or what they do understand, you know, how can you make it better? So it takes a long time to write a book for a show. You know, Mark wrote the music and lyrics and it's just sensational. There's nobody that says anything but phenomenal. So we know we're on the right track. I just have to fix the book a little bit, you know. Yeah, we'll see. And so speaking of that sort of idea of people commenting, I'd be curious to know, what have you thought about critics throughout your career and their role? Well, some of them have been very kind. 
to me, super kind. I mean, after night music, it was, I said, who are they talking about? <laughs> I was still the girl from the Bronx. You know, I, I wasn't polished and I wasn't savvy. I was a mother with two kids that went home and cleaned diapers and, you know, fed formula and stuff like that. That's who I was. So I wasn't really sure who they were talking about. I knew I loved acting and I knew I loved singing. So the critics for night music were amazing, all of them. Okay, so that was that. Then through my career, um, I got wonderful, some wonderful reviews. And then I got reviews which said I can't sing. So now who do you believe? How do you pick the truth out of any of that? And uh, answer is you don't. Yeah. You just stay true to your material, do your job every night. And that's it. That's why I took such exception to the Beanie Feldstein critics. I really, truly did. That show was designed for Barbara Streisand. Some people on Facebook have um, argued, no, but they're wrong because I got it from a friend of Barbara Streisand's that uh, it was retailored for her voice and her comedic abilities, of which are many. She's very funny. She can be. And so for Beanie to try to step into those shoes, that, that was a rough call, you know? Yeah. She gave it her all. She did the best she could. And then she got sick. Eight shows a week. COVID. Tonsillitis. Come on. You know, can happen. Stress. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And so I'd love to ask about your, um, about your life and your career. What made you decide to take the name DJ Men? That's your first name. Um, yes. Okay. So uh, I... I don't actually always reveal my real, my birth name, but because I was always called D, everybody called me D or DD. Okay. My grandmother called me DD. All right. So uh, when I went into night music and as I said, very fast and uh, Hal said, uh, you know, what should we have to put your name in the program? And it was spelled differently. If you have that old, uh, album or anybody has it, it's spelled D period Jamin hyphen Bartlett. And Hal didn't like that. One day he put me into the show on the Monday before we opened on Tuesday. So he walked me all through the show because the cast, that's their day off. And he wasn't about to call in a bunch of grumpy actors to work with me you know, putting me into the show. So he put me in and it was very funny. He did all the roles, including Victoria Mallory's. It was very funny. Anyway, <laughs> wish we had had phones at that time. I would have, uh, you know, uh, recorded him if he had let me. Anyways, um, we're, I'm on a short break and he comes, he says, do I want to talk to you about your name? And I said, oh shoot, here we go. He said, I'm going to change it. He said, what's your nationality? I said, I'm Italian and French. He said, good, because I want to spell your name. D, up is Jamin a French name? I said, yes, it is. It's pronounced your man. So he said, we're going to spell it D apostrophe J-A-M-I-N. Drop the hyphen, Ed Bartlett. He said, uh, because the spelling you have is very English. 
He said, and you are not English by any stretch of anyone's imagination. I said, no, I'm not. So he said, you send this over to equity now. He said, call, call it in. If they have any trouble with that, tell them to talk to me. They had no trouble with it at all. So that became my name, my official name. And now it's my real name. Oh, wow. And so I'd love to ask about Spotlight, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. And so there you were working with David Black, but also Tony Stevens, a great choreographer. Tony Stevens, yes, who's a wonderful, wonderful uh, choreographer and just a great all-around guy. Tony's a fantastic guy. And, uh, and Gene Barry, you know, fantastic actor. Uh, again, David Black stumbled a little bit with the book and stuff like that. He just wasn't sure what was going on. But Tony Stevens was uh, choreographing and staging the numbers. And that saved, at least the show, it saved it in previews. It didn't make it to New York. No, it couldn't. And what was that show sort of like or about? Or? That show, uh, Gene Barry was uh, um, old-fashioned uh, hoof, hoof and a hoofer, a dance fan, song and dance man from Bordville. And his daughter, Holly, which is what I played, his daughter, wanted to break into the business. And he was leery about that because it's a rough business. So, um, so it's kind of a, a, a thing between a mother, a, a daughter and a father, a father and a daughter in the same business, maybe almost to take off on Liza and Judy, almost, you know, a little bit, um, that kind of thing. And Gene was wonderful. He really is. A, he was a terrific actor and a, a terrific singer and a real, he really could hoof. He really was a, a, a hoofer and, a, and fun, fun to work with. But, you know, again, there's the elements in a show. And it was a big show. It was like expensive to take in. So, you know, it died out of town, died in Washington. And so your own daughter, uh, Allison, is also an actress. I think she was on Broadway at one point. And so did and you? Yeah, she did, was. And she took over Cynthia Nixon till the end of the show. Wow. And she was very young. Yeah, she was only 13. And uh, when Nichols found that out, he said, uh, well, well, we can't. We, we can't have that, you know, because it was a racy kind of show, Hurley Burley. And uh, they had to get my permission I asked her, I said, you sure you want to do this? Yes, yes, yes. So I had to go. Either I had to go or my husband had to go to the theater to chaperone her every single night, which was kind of a drag. But we did. And, you know, and she was wonderful in it. And her career just took off. She was fantastic in that. Then right after that, she got... Um, landscape of the body with Kristen Lottie at second stage company and she was incredible in that and she because I had trouble with landscape of the body too it was a racy kind of it's uh, uh John Guare whom I love I did House of Blue Leaves so I love John Guare it's just you know she was 13 she was 14 years old she had to be uh tutored backstage and everything and you know at home and so uh she got uh Sesame Street and she says is that clean enough for you now? <laughs> I said, yeah, that works. Okay. <laughs> the Muppets aren't going to cuss or anything. <laughs> so she was on that for almost 14, 15 years. And then she went on to do uh, 
uh, The Sopranos, uh, uh, Law and Order, uh, all, all kinds of different uh, movies, uh, wonderful. And she's still working uh, as a writer and an actress. Uh, she writes and is very successful at writing documentaries and filming them. Yeah, so she's, you know, she just kept on in the business. She's a kid that really grew up in the business, you know, that, yeah, it's in her blood. <laughs> and so I'd love to ask about the other Broadway show you did that we haven't mentioned yet, which is Boccaccio that you did. Oh my, Boccaccio, the Decameron. Yeah. Um, oh, that was that was a piece of work, that thing. But it's again, the actors, amazing. Armanda Sante, Virginia Vestoff, Stephen Bauer, um, Jill O'Hara, wonderful, wonderful actors. And again, difficult book, very difficult, taking the tales of the Cameron and turning them into music. It was successful in Washington, D.C., which I wasn't in that company. And then they brought it to the Edison Theater in New York. And uh, I don't know, it just, they had, they changed directors midstream. They had fights, they had battles and all kinds of stuff that do not make a good musical. And it, it opened, it got uh, halfway decent reviews, thank God. None of us got really killed in it. You know, I was happy about that. Virginia Vestoff and I called each other. She said, we, we made it. When, when I, you know, they, they didn't kill us. I said, I know they didn't. They could have, but they didn't. And, um, but it closed shortly after that. It was at the Edison Theater. And then after that, they had a huge hit called Old Calcutta, which ran oh. forever because took their clothes off. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> which we weren't going to do at all <laughs> so you did also a musical off Broadway called Lulu which was based on two Lulu was an amazing experience unbelievable experience with a book by Craig Lucas it's based on the uh Vitakind operas uh Frank Vitakind who wrote the, the opera Lulu and it's about Jack the Ripper and Craig Lucas uh redid the book as a musical and uh, Craig Belknap uh, uh, directed it. And now there's a director, okay? Had Craig lived long enough, he would have been up there with Jerry Zachs and Mark Bruni and all of them because he was an amazing director, amazing. And uh, I loved it. I won the show business award for it, which, you know, the, the paper, and I was so excited. <laughs> it came, it came in the uh, mail. It was a little piece of paper, but I was happy, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I loved it every minute of it. And as I said, my my kids, Allison, the little actress, was still very young. And Lulu dies on stage. Jack the Ripper does kill her. He rips her open, and she screamed. <gasps> her stupid father took her to see this thing. I think just. He didn't have a babysitter and she was screaming a little head off and they had to take her out of <laughs> out of the theater because fake blood squirts out of you the blood sisters oh. and all yeah the kid was freaked you know so i had to run backstage right after it and say no i'm here mommy's here i'm here i'm okay i'm okay okay <laughs> great show great great show should have gone on and on and on you know oh, yeah. you never know what's going to really hit and what isn't going to make it 
it's, it's always more or less a toss up. I mean, if you have a cabaret and you have those kinds of talents attached to it, you're going to have a hit. There's no yeah. way around it. You know, the um, same with Phantom of the Opera. You're going to have a hit. Okay. The fact that Cats was such a hit with really just the one great song was kind of amazing. But it was. It, I mean, it was a monster hit along with Evita. Um, and of course, night music was more of a hit than we thought it would be. Yeah. But it, it did touch audiences as a really sophisticated um, grown-up musical is what Clive Barnes called it. And he was right. It was a grown-up musical, you know. So, uh, but it really is a toss-up. And it is trying to put your thumb on what an audience wants out of not only the music, the book, the actors, the staging, everything. And when you hit that formula, you that's it, it works. And shows we think should stay open, you know, people are saying, you know, companies closing, they're so upset. The original company stayed open for quite a while. Uh, I haven't seen this company, so I don't know. But apparently, I guess, maybe with audiences of today, maybe the show, even though they tried to change it and make Bobby, uh, a Bobino, whatever she was, a girl, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe it just didn't click with the audiences today. And that's another thing with some of the revivals where Music Man, which is so old and so dated, but has two phenomenal stars, you know, uh, Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman, come on. Yeah. You know, people would go just to see them. Um, I hope it's open. I'm at Cape right now, Cape Cod, and we're working, so we don't go down to New York. But I hope when uh, we go finally go down sometime in November, we can see it because I I love I love it. Like, Who knows what's going to take off in a musical, right, or a show, play? We don't know. Yeah. And so around this time, you did a lot of the sort of great roles of theater and stock and all that. And so, was there any role that you wanted to do but didn't get to do? Uh, yeah, a Guinevere in Camelot. Nobody hired me. I thought I was good. <laughs> I auditioned well, I thought, but no, other people didn't think I was so good. So there you go. I didn't get that. And I'm trying to think of other, uh, some things. Um, I was just too young. I wanted to do Billy Elliot and I was supposed to be the grandma and sing that wonderful song, which I thought was terrific. But I met the director and I was face to face to them, you can't see me right now. But I was face to face with him. He said, you can't play a grandmother. <laughs> he said, you look too young. And, um, you know, I said, well, you can line my face, you can pad my body or whatever you want to do. And he said, no, that kind of stuff always translates across the footlights. He said, I'm sorry. He said, you know, I would love to hire you for this. He said, um, so I didn't get Billy Elliot and I didn't get uh, Guinevere. And, um, I'm trying to think. No, not really, because I went on for the last 25 years. I've been working with Mark and we run a music business, both in Florida and here in Massachusetts. We ran nightclubs, not bars. It's a huge difference. We ran a place called Turnberry Isle Resort, 
which is in North Miami Beach. And it was the playground of the stars. And we met uh, Billy Joel. I sang with Whitney Houston. Uh, Tony Bennett walked in there. Yeah, I mean, Sting. Oh, I'm just off the top of my head. And we ran that particular club for 15 years. Then we were moved to Las Vegas to open their sister club, Turnberry Place in Las Vegas. Same thing. James Kahn. I sang and danced with Jimmy Kahn. And again, Tony Bennett came into the club. Um, it was an amazing journey. And Mark and I were flown all around uh, uh, the country in and out of Latin America to do uh, concerts, to do conventions and stuff. So my, my theater roots, unfortunately, fell to the side for a while because I had to be available, you know, when the jobs came in, I had to be available. So um, that's why I'm actually happy to be back and reconnecting, you know, and people that I, I worked with years ago are reconnecting with me. And it's just wonderful to see them again and to know that they're okay, you know, after this crazy COVID mess and everything. And, uh, but your life takes a different turn. And I'm actually glad that it did. I learned so much. I've learned thousands of songs that I never would have sung, you know, ever. Disco tunes and stuff like that. I would never would have sung them. And I heard, uh, I hope I'm saying her name right, the wonderful girl in Wicked, the Wicked Witch, Indel Men. Oh, Indel Yeah. She said she started as a band singer and she was very cute. And she was at one point, I guess, after maybe she was out of Wicked or something, she said, well, maybe I could always go back to that. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, sweetheart, you can, you know, different doors open. That's it. But she's just such a wonderful, wonderful performer. I, I love her, you know. So, but you do learn. You learn in every aspect of your life. And as long as you are performing, which we were in these nightclubs, uh, you know, you grow. You grow as a performer, which gave me the courage to then write. I said, what I'm going to do is write something I always have loved. As I said, my well, I didn't tell you, my grandmother came from Italy. My whole side of that family came from Italy and they were very uh, spooky. And so <laughs> they did the Ouija board and all kinds of things. And she looked exactly like a witch. She, What you think a Halloween witch would look like, okay? With the long white hair and the long chin and even a hair growing out of it, a mole, <laughs> everything. And But I loved her. I thought she was beautiful. And so my fascination for witches grew. And I got to play many, as I said, in my career, I played witches. So I said, well, why the hell don't I just write one? So I did. And so Confessions of a Retired Witch was born. And um, it's funny, a Variety has called it a charming, a very charming and funny book and a sensational score. So I'm happy about that, you know, and we'll see. We're, we're trying to get it on, looking for producers uh, and producing theaters because uh, that's the most important thing. If you find producing theaters around that will take on new, and it's a small property. It's three actors, one set. And Hal Prince loved the music. 
I, I was too nervous to show him the book right away. I gave him the whole premise and he loved that. But um, unfortunately, you know, he's gone. And so I, there's nobody to replace him. That's for certain. Nope, not in my life anyway. And so I would love to ask about the one of the last acting projects you did, I believe, which was um, Lend Me a Tenor on tour. Lend Me a Tenor, our national tour. Oh my, that was fun. <laughs> that was fun and very, um, you learn so much being on tour. Uh, I played Maria Morelli, uh, the, uh, the Italian, the wacky Italian, you know, Jerry's ax said, oh yeah, she can do that. And so <laughs> I did that. And uh, opposite uh, Ron Holgate, who had done the show on Broadway and um, Barry, uh, oh, come on, what's his last name? Famous actor, Barry Nelson was uh, the older man uh, in it. He was wonderful, absolutely wonderful Barry Nelson. Never missed a line. I couldn't have remembered all that, you know? And uh, terrific book, wonderful book. See, there's the the thing that the writing was just sensational. You wrap your lips around it and whatever you said, the audience loved. So it makes it easy. That was a lot of fun. We did almost every single city in the United States, just about, yeah. So then it was shortly after that, um, not right away, but shortly after that, I uh, met Mark, my future partner forever. Uh, and then my life took that different turn, you know. But I, I had such fun doing that. It really was a wonderful show. And so when you were working at these, uh, when you had, uh, were running these nightclubs, yes. how do you find this sort of pop world to be different from the theater world in terms of the stars or? Oh, it is incredibly different. Yes, it is. So we would be doing a lot of uh, pop songs uh, at, at whatever was popular at the time. Mark actually took on that because he's amazing. He's a chameleon on the piano. He goes from classical, you know, from Beethoven and Bach to uh, Billy Joel to any, anything you want to hear. It's just amazing. Sometimes they'll intertwine the two of them. He's, and he left me to do uh, the sultry ballads and uh, things like that. And every now and then I would pop in um, a disco tune or something like that if somebody wanted that you know, I will survive or something like that. However, our biggest, uh, our biggest numbers we were asked for were always Broadway show tunes, which was amazing. And thank God he can play them. A lot of musicians in his position cannot play them. They have no idea uh, what they are but he could rip off uh, Evita, uh, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, Memory, um, or anything, anything Kendra and Ebb wrote. And we always got nice hefty tips because these were people from New York coming to hear us and staying at this resort, you know, five-star resort. And uh, yeah, it, it was beautiful. It was a very, very wonderful time in our lives. We had a great time. You know, I don't regret doing it. People said, yeah, but you gave up Broadway. My agents said that. You gave up the theater. You gave up Broadway. You gave up this. You gave up that. I did uh, two shows down in um, Florida. 
I did Man of La Mancha. I played Aldonza, and that was fun. I had a lot of fun doing that. Tiny little black box theater, but fun. Um, and I also did uh, the, the female odd couple. Oh. I played Florence, yes. And right before I left New York, maybe if I had gotten it, I would have stayed. I was to replace Sally Struthers in the Broadway production, but then it closed. And I would have been opposite Cheetah Rivera, whom I adore, but um, it closed. So, because they knew Sally Struthers was leaving. So the show closed. So then, you know, it was set. It was time for me to move on. That's how I looked at it. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you learn, you learn in, in those things. But Broadway show tunes are still a huge hit. We're doing a Broadway concert up here oh. on August 16th. Mm -hmm. uh, Broadway Rebounds, we've called it, you know. And, uh, oh, it's all the wonderful, the old show tunes and then, you know, Hamilton and uh, newer ones and, the things that we enjoy doing and what the audience, again, you got to know your audience and they still want Cats, Evita, Les Mis, uh, you know, um, Phantom, uh, Kendra and Ebb. They still want those. So you got to give it to them. And why not? They're great songs. So there you go. <laughs> so in this new sort of phase of your career where you're writing, I'd be curious to know, what have you taken from some of the book writers that you've worked with over time? Yeah, I, I, you, that's an excellent question because I have read a lot of scripts myself oh. and, what, uh, and old scripts that I was in, you know, shows that I was in, and then scripts from my writer friends. Uh, uh, in order, you have to earn your songs. The book has to come first actually. And because uh, our show has gone through so many different stages, now the music is set. I'm not changing the music. I'd be stupid to do that. So I'm not doing that. So, I, but I am changing the book. The characters have stayed the same. My actors take on five, uh, one, my wonderful actor, Gary Harger, who was in Shenandoah, Oh, a voice that the gods just kissed him and a great actor and, and he dances. I mean, what's not to love? Plus he plays the piano himself. So there you go. Mark just has to give him a piece of music and he's got it, you know. Um, he takes on, uh, actually now it's four different roles and plays each one of them brilliantly. And the young lady was taking on four different roles. And what I've learned is that if the book doesn't lead up to the song you don't need the song and some writers and I go to workshops not workshops I go to readings and I watch the readings and I always I told you I'm the kind of audience that you know would love to just love everything and hoot and holler and say yeah go for it go for it go. Um, sometimes I'm at a lost I don't get it you know sometimes the cast is too big so they can't after working in nightclubs you learn how to relate to an audience yeah. even as an actor and I was told by uh, a gentleman that's been in the business for 50 years himself running theaters he said you need to relate to the as in relation to my own show he came to a reading. He said, you need 
to relate to the audience. He said, you're very good at that. He said, you're playing the witch and you, you, we need to know more about the witch. He said, you've been very generous and given it to other people. He said, but we need to know about you. You have to narrate the property. Yeah. It made perfect sense to me. I, I said, yeah, but I have to learn a lot of lines. He said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> he, said, he said, yeah, but, but we, need, we need it. Forget what you need. We need it. We need to know what's going on with the witch. And then another friend said, she's awfully nice. Witch like could be, you know, a, a clone from Mother Teresa. What is this? She's a witch. And you have to make her have some, some more wickedness about her. I said, okay, but she's a love witch. You know, there's different, there's different witches, the di different um, genres of witches. And so she's a love witch. That's, that's her basic thing. And she said, well, love witch or not, she's got to maybe break a few hearts, maybe have hearts broken, things. Hey, wonderful, wonderful things. So I've taken their advice. I'm, I don't give advice to other writers, not because I don't want them to succeed, but because I sometimes feel that maybe they know more than I know, but maybe they don't. You know, it's, it's like, <laughs> it's always, you never really know what, what you're going to do in a situation like that. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm toying with the idea, but if he says he hates it, I'll probably slip my throat, uh, of giving it to Charles Bush, whom I adore, uh, vampires, lesbians, and Sodom, the great Charles Bush, whom I did ankles away with up in Goodspeed Opera House, and see if he comes away with anything. So I'll try. <laughs> I'll try. We'll see. <laughs> Anyways. And so I'd like to um, ask you one final question, which sure. What? sort of other ideas or other subjects might you want to write a musical about in the future? Yes, we do have one. And I have to stop Mark from writing songs for it because I said, look, we can't go through the same thing I went through with Confessions, all right? And first I have to get Confessions on first. He's gotta be known as the writer of that first. Yeah. Uh, but the other one is a, is a, a serious uh, musical. It's a, about children of the Holocaust called One More Life. And he has written the title song, how Prince heard it and just flipped out over it. He thought it was gorgeous. But it, it's just right now it's in its infancy as an idea. But I literally have to grab his hands and say, don't write. Let me finish some more of the book before you write anything, you know. But it's impossible because the songs go through his head and he writes them down and they're really wonderful. Even, even the ones to this, but it is about the children of the Holocaust, which uh, he's Jewish and I'm Episcopalian. Um, we have, but we know a lot about it. We worked for an organization called Moganda Vida Dom, is the ambulances that are sent to Israel. And we did shows for them. And we pushed people to donate ambulances. And we learned an awful lot about uh, all of that through that organization. And so the children of the Holocaust, of course, children suffer all the time. I mean, yes, of course the adults suffered, but it was the little kids that never got to grow up. 
So that hit us really hard. And the two of us began to write this musical. And, uh, you know, we hope to bring it after, after uh, Confessions opens, we hope to bring it uh, to New York. You know, try it out of town first, like we said, <laughs> and, then, and then bring it to New York and, uh, and see those. I, I think it'd be a big hit, you know. It's beautiful. But now you have to try to write funny songs for a very sad musical. So that, that's, the, that's the hard part, where yeah. Confessions is a funny musical. It, it has some, a couple of serious songs, in, but it's basically, you know, a comedy, musical comedy. This would be a musical drama, you know, like a Les Mis type of thing. We'll see. Okay. That's what we're up to. <laughs> well, those both sound great, and I hope I get to see them. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank um, you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Remember to buy your tickets to Backstage Babble Live, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by Pulitzer Prize-nominated playwright Craig Lucas. Craig Lucas is currently the librettist for the off-Broadway musical Days of Wine and Roses, which concludes its run on July 16th. His other plays include Prayer for My Enemy, The Dying Gall, Blue Window, Missing Persons, Orpheus in Love, Prelude to a Kiss, and Reckless. And he is the author of the books for the musicals Amelie, Paradise Square, An American in Paris, and The Light in the Piazza. You won't want to miss this episode, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.